Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Our second reading for this afternoon is from John, chapter 4, from verses 1 to 17. John, chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judah and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, nothing to draw with and the well is deep where can you get this living water are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock Jesus answered everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst indeed the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon. Am I on? Yes, I am. Uh, well, this is the final in our Sweet Little Lies series. Uh, the last one. 
So I hope you've enjoyed this series. I think it's just been a wonderful and timely reminder of the kinds of things that we can believe that aren't true, but that shape us and shape uh, what we believe. Um, John's already prayed, but let me pray again before we dive into this final one. Uh, Father, may the truth of your word pierce our hearts and bring us to repentance and faith. Amen. You complete me. So Tom Cruise uttered at the end of his speech, at the end of the movie, Jerry Maguire, as he uh, tries to win back his wife. So Jerry has gone from uh, sports agent superstar, completely work-obsessed, to a more honourable sports-obsessed uh, 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 sports agent to, again, a career-obsessed sports agent. He's done this kind of arc. And in, in these final moments of the movie, he's running back from kind of come to his senses, realise what he's lost and what he's put aside uh, for his idol of work. And he runs back to his ex-wife with a speech that has well earned its place in the Hall of Fame for all rom-com speeches. You complete me, he says. And of course, she replies after a little bit, you had me at hello. I hope you know the one. Um, if, if you complete me could be imagined as a tiny shard of ice jutting out of the ocean, then it, underneath the surface is a monumental iceberg. That one line connects to a series of assumptions about relationships that have dominated society for a long time that we cannot be truly fulfilled as human beings without a romantic relationship. And not just any old romance, no, an epic one full of fireworks. And not just any old partner, no, a soulmate. And this message has been broadcast for decades, particularly through that most powerful of mediums, pop music, I'm lost without you. I'm nothing without you. You are my everything. You make my dreams come true. You were meant for me and I was meant for you. You are the wind beneath my wings. This message is so popular because actually deep down it's a story that we, we really want to believe. And even if consciously a few of us here are like, oh, that's so sappy, I don't buy that stuff. In the end, it's just a lovely idea that there's someone out there who can complete you. It's sweet. We want to believe it. It's, a, it's little, it seems so romantic and innocent. But it's a lie, and as a lie, it's destructive. So as we delve into this final sweet little lie, as we have done every week in this series, we're going to understand it, we're going to challenge it, and then we're going to see how the gospel subverts it. We're going to understand it, we're going to challenge it, we're going to see how the gospel subverts it. Let's understand it a little bit more first. Um, our society is at once uh, incredibly confused about relationships, but also rather unwilling to admit it. Relationships, we are told every day through all sorts of media and messengers, are everything and nothing. 
Relationships are everything and nothing. Uh, a little while ago, Jackie and I uh, got uh, a bit addicted to Indian Matchmaker on Netflix. Have you seen it? It's fantastic. Uh, you're watching these young, attractive Indian men and women searching for a husband or wife that rather hilariously meets their incredibly high expectations. Uh, some of these people's their lists for what they want in a spouse just goes on and on and on. And right in the middle of it all is Auntie Seema from Mumbai, this, uh, this elderly, matronly auntie figure who swans into their loveless lives and, find, and promises to find them a match. But first of all, she has to get them down from their high ideals and find someone who's good, not perfect, but a good match. And her services, I know because I looked it up, do not come cheap. <laughs> Matchmaking is big business. And while there's been a movement back to those traditional matchmaking agencies, online dating apps still rule our world. Tindall, Bumble, OkCupid, Hinge, Match, Her, eHarmony, the list goes on. Most people have all of them on their phone at once. The industry is today worth $2.86 billion, projected to be $3.41 billion by 2027. Five years. And now most of these apps are purportedly designed to help people find a long-term relationship, um, but it might take some work. One author estimates that you need to go on about 121 dates before you find the one. 121. Uh, uh, and the one. That term is still ubiquitous in our culture, in the search for love. That one person out of the billions of choices who can truly complete you. We see this in movies all the time. And pop music, again, reinforces this idea of the one, this perfect life partner. Taylor Swift apparently found the one in her song, King of My Heart. She sings, and all at once you are the one I have been waiting for, king of my heart, body, and soul. King of my heart, body, and soul. That's some seriously high stakes, Tay-Tay. That's, someone's got a lot riding on him. But that's the message, right? You are deficient until you find someone to complete you. Emotionally, you can't be happy. Sexually, you cannot be satisfied. Relationally, you'll be desperately lonely. And so the message is clear. Relationships, and particularly romantic relationships, a relationship with the one is everything. It's everything. But also, relationships mean nothing. There is a parallel story that is the complete opposite. Not you complete me, but I don't need you. No one wants to be tied down in a boring, monogamous relationship that just reeks of oppression and restriction. We should be free agents, flitting from person to person, never committing, never being disappointed, never, never settling down. Uh, we were just watching... Um, uh, new Netflix kind of teen movie, Do Revenge. Uh, and one of the people in the characters in the movie gets outed for having lots of secret girlfriends. Uh, and one response is to laud him for being so progressive. This is an enlightened individual who's thrown off the shackles of 
single commitment. Ironically, even a show like Married at First Sight um, is not really about commitment. It turns marriage into this spectacle, uh, not really expected to last, and if a relationship does last, it's kind of seen as more of a fluke than anything else. The feminist icon uh, Gloria Steinem popularized, uh, popularized the phrase, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. It's a, a counter-narrative to you complete me is I don't need you. And after decades of princesses being rescued by princes in Disney movies, Disney took a sharp left turn to make its films give young girls a different message that a strong, independent, successful, modern woman doesn't and shouldn't need a man to solve her problems or to feel happy, as one writer puts it. Every now and then there will be a media article with the clickbait headline, humans are not designed for marriage. And some scientists somewhere will argue that we'd be much more true to our evolutionary selves if we left behind such outdated ideas like monogamy. So relationships mean nothing. But sex is still everything, should point out. Long gone are the days when sex was primarily attached to a relational commitment. For all the apps that purport to, find, uh, to help you find true love, some of them are honest enough to say that what people really want out of them are quick hookups. Polyamory, the sexual relationships of multiple people is a cool buzzword. Porn is accessible with casual ease and joked about and marketed. And messages from TV shows and billboards is pretty clear that if you aren't having the best intimacy of your life, then what are you even doing? If you'll permit me to quote Taylor Swift for a second time in a sermon, uh, in her coming of age anthem 22, she sings, we're happy, free, confused, and lonely at the same time. It's some kind of boppy, but it betrays the sadness there, isn't it? We're happy, free, confused, and lonely at the same time. We're told we're meant to be happy. We're told that we're free, but we're also confused and lonely. Actually, the reality is we are less happy and less free, but very confused and very lonely. And no wonder, because we've been sold a confusing view of life, a confusing view of relationships, because they're everything and they're nothing. Marriage is totally forever and completely temporary. Sexual intimacy means everything and nothing. You complete me and I don't need you. It's no wonder so many people, particularly so many young people, feel disoriented and disillusioned. Clearly we need a better story than this. And there is one. Let's challenge this narrative a little bit. The first part of challenging the narrative is understanding why our society can hold two completely opposing ideas at the same time. And the Bible gives a really elegant answer, and it starts in the very beginning in Genesis. You know, this is the first couple of chapters of the story of creation, as God brings order and life and light into this disordered and dark world. And uh, the pinnacle of his creation creates human beings to uh, represent him and reflect him as his images. 
And one of the very first things we learn about humans is what sets them apart from animals, that they and they alone are designed for relationship. God says in verse 18, uh, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will find a helper suitable for him. Now, helper sounds a bit uh, diminutive, a bit subordinate, uh, but actually it's a powerful word in Hebrew and in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, It's later used to describe uh, God himself as the one who brings military strength uh, to help Israel in battle. This is a person of strength and fortitude who provides vital help. And the emphasis on this relationship is one of equals, a partnership Two people who fill in what the other lacks. And so God, finding that the animals don't quite cut the mustard for this particular role description, creates Eve. And and upon seeing her, Adam bursts into song. That sounds very romantic. And it is. But interestingly, the, the emphasis of his song is not kind of erotic love or even how beautiful she is or anything like that. What he's amazed at and expresses poetically is God's beautiful design in bringing the two of them together. There's clearly actually a truth in you complete me. Because in a real way, that's what's happening here. Eve is Adam's complement, and they are better together than they are apart. But there's more to the story. Because Adam and Eve are designed for relationship, but not just for each other. Let's go back to verse 7. Uh, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. You know, later on we see God strolling through the garden, um, looking forward, it seems, to just being with these people that he's made. And this much is clear. Humans are designed to be in a relationship and most, the most important relationship they have is with their creator. God is described right from the beginning, not as some impersonal force, but a personal being who loves and desires for those people he has made to love him. Yes, Adam and Eve were quite literally made for each other, But we can affirm that, um, and we confirm therefore that relationships between human beings are vitally important. But before they were made for each other, they were made for God. God has made us for himself. And we know this because the very next thing that happens is that relationship, that primary relationship, is fractured. Adam, uh, Eve, and then Adam give in to temptation and they broke the one rule that God gave them. Instead of trusting in him to uh, wisely rule their life for their good, they trust in themselves and they eat from the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then when God came calling, walking through the cool, the cool of the garden in the evening, he finds them naked and ashamed. See, they were always naked, but now they knew it. And they knew they had done wrong. And what did they do? Eve blamed his wife and Eve blamed the serpent. Almost immediately, as they distanced themselves from God in that first rebellion, they started to distance themselves from each other. Can you see that link? 
They distanced themselves from God by saying, we don't trust you, God. And even as they did, they started to distance themselves from each other. And that rift just kept growing and growing, passed down from generation to generation. Almost every page of the Bible after that is, portrays uh, pain and conflict and hurt and betrayal between people. All this teaches us that we are designed for relationship, but without a relationship with God, our relationships with each other will strain and crack and break. Relationships are everything. They're everything to us because God made them good. But they can also be nothing to us because we can see others as objects to use or blame. Sin takes God's beautiful gift and distorts it. I had a go at defining what sin is last week. I said, sin is when we turn to our deepest needs for things like power, security, comfort, and acceptance. And we make them idols to worship, ultimate things to be achieved at all costs. And God offers us all these things, actually, Part and parcel of having a relationship with him is to have those things as his gifts. But if we don't get them from God, if we don't trust him to give them to us, the next best thing is to find them in each other. Not look to God, but to the images he's made. Uh, The Pulitzer Prize winning author Ernest Becker makes the point really well. He writes, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love of partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. What happens when you look to a romantic partner for your redemption? Well, things get bad quick. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, um, tells a story of Jeff and Sue. Um, and this, these two people are initially extraordinarily attracted to each other. He's tall and handsome, talkative, a leader. Uh, she's shy but decisive and future-oriented, full of wisdom. But over time, they began to see each other differently. His talkativeness began to seem like self-absorption. Uh, and her lack of career ambition seemed a bit of a disappointment. And quickly, as quickly as they had become enchanted with each other, they became disenchanted. They had such high hopes for each other, but in the end they couldn't give what the other really wanted, and so began to spiral down to separation and ultimately divorce. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. This is it, right? Without God in the picture, our desires will just jump from person to person, object to object, constantly searching for the satisfaction we crave, constantly searching for that moment when we can say, yes, I am complete. Now, at this point, I can imagine a few of you are going, that's all very nice. I just don't really struggle with this, though. I get the whole romance, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm actually pretty good at this. I'm satisfied with my wife or my husband, or I'm, I'm, I'm single and I kind of get this. I'm okay. 
I'm not looking to any romantic partner to complete me. And that's you, great, that's really good. But here's the thing. You may not be looking to a romantic partner, but you'll probably look for something in someone. I'll be complete when I have kids. I'll be complete when my kids behave and when they grow up to be just what I want them to be. I'll be complete when my dad or my mum approves of me. I'll be complete when I find the perfect circle of friends. And here's one. I'll be complete when I find the perfect church community. Of course, the closest thing to Jesus himself without being Jesus is Jesus' body, right? So wouldn't it be possible to look at the church and think, yes, here is a set of relationships that will make me whole. And so we can find that you complete me is not actually about romance, or it can be. You complete me is a basic attitude to say, I am going to find my ultimate sense of satisfaction, my meaning in life, in someone. And it's a lie that can attach itself to any kind of relationship. And it's just as crushing no matter which one you pick. Your kids, your parents, your friends, this church, none of them make good saviors. Expect them to complete you and you will only find yourself burnt out, disappointed, resentful and jaded. In fact, a good, a good diagnostic test for yourself to find out if you do this is, are you struggling to forgive someone? Are you struggling to not hold a grudge against someone? Are you struggling not to bring out someone's faults and problems and rehearse them in your head? Because that's what we do when the object of our affection doesn't bring us what we want. So what do we do? Is there a way to actually build healthy relationships? Can we be connected with people but without being completely connected to them, without being unhealthily dependent on them? We can, actually, because the gospel takes this lie and subverts it and gives us a better story in which to live. And I can't think of a better place to go for this than John chapter 4. You know the story. Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and uh, he comes across a woman at a well, and he stops to ask her for a drink. And she's a mixture of appalled and curious. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. We find later a bit more about this woman's situation. She says five husbands, and the, and the man that she's currently with is not her husband. She's not married. And plenty of interpreters have taken this to mean that she was a kind of promiscuous woman, uh, jumping from man to man, you know. But I don't think that's actually very likely. What she was looking for was probably not pleasure, but security. Because in those days, an unmarried woman was one of the most vulnerable people in society. No welfare system outside of the family unit. So if you don't have a biological family close by, and if you don't have a husband, then you're in a dire straits. So if her first husband had died, 
and then she'd been abandoned by a second husband, then maybe the third had divorced her, and then the fourth and then the fifth. Well, if that was the case, and this is a woman who's probably desperate enough for security to even agree to be living with a man who's not willing to marry her because of her track record. And so in her eyes and in the eyes of society, she is incomplete, deficient. In this context, water and thirst suddenly take on a deep spiritual meaning. Remember, we're all thirsty, right? Longing to be satisfied, to drink deeply from a permanent sense of security, comfort, acceptance, affection. And this particular woman, I think, is thirsty for security. And so Jesus' words rang in her ears, and they should ring in ours as well. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never Adam and Eve cut themselves off from that living spring of life. And they looked to find that life in each other and in many other things. Jesus is the second Adam, the new Adam. And he comes and says, I am the source of life. Find your satisfaction in me. A relationship with me never leaves you unsatisfied. Of course, the water he's talking about in this, with this woman in John 4 is himself. And so we can ask ourselves these questions. Do you long for security? Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll protect you to your dying day and even past death into eternity. Do you long for comfort? His love for you will be an never ending source of joy and delight? Do you long for intimacy? Well, he sent his spirit to live in you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you. He knows everything about you. He rejoices with your triumphs. He grieves with your hurts. Do you long for acceptance? Well, he accepts you completely. Despite your flaws and failings, he forgives you and cleanses you without hesitation, without a moment's thought. Jesus makes this promise actually to us, I'll complete you. I will satisfy your thirst. And then he proves it by dying for us. See, Jesus took the place of a human at their most lonely and abandoned, cut off from the love of his father, cut off from the love of friends, cut off from the love of country, And he dealt with the one thing that keeps us from a relationship with God. He dealt with our sin. He forgives us, cleanses us, brings us back to God, reconnects us to the source of life. And we find in him all we need. C.S. Lewis famously said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Jesus said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. See, if Jesus is God, then we will only be satisfied in him. We will only be complete in him. There's a song we sang about to sing. says, our hearts will wander. They're prone to wander until they find rest in him.
And so no wonder that the Apostle Paul, when talking about marriage, says this is a symbol, a signpost of the relationship between Christ and the church. If Jesus is our everything, what does it mean? Does it mean that our other relationships are nothing? And I've heard this from Christians. Jesus is my everything. I don't need anything else. No, actually. Because if we had nothing but Jesus, that would be enough. It's true. But God is generous and it's still not good for us to be alone. We are designed for relationships. Primarily with God, yes, but absolutely also with each other. But only with our truest and greatest love in Jesus will our relationships be truly good. If we don't need to make others our everything, then we are free to enjoy them truly. Our loved ones are freed from fulfilling our deepest needs and we are freed from the disappointment of being let down. And it means we can find the grace to forgive, the resilience to work through conflict, the humility to overcome disappointment. We'll still find a measure of security and comfort and pleasure and affection and acceptance in our relationship with each other. Of course we will. God designed them to be conduits of his good gifts. But they are not the source. And if we know that, then we'll enjoy them all the more. The gospel says that we can remove the crushing weight of our own expectations on others and lay them on the shoulders of the one who can not only bear them but fulfill them. And if that, to the extent that that becomes true for us, then a relationship, a kiss, a hug, a compliment, an encouragement, a wedding vow, the promise of friends, all these things in the light of Christ become more beautiful and more precious and more enjoyable and good. So there's something powerful that we can say to each other, not maybe literally, but at least think it, you don't complete me. You can't. You never will. But as Christ completes my life more and more each day, you will become more important to me. And I will learn to love you and serve you more than ever. And I will enjoy our relationship more than ever. You're not everything. You're not nothing. You're just what you need to be. As Christ treasures me, and I treasure him, so I'll treasure you. If there's any questions, I'd love to take them. You can put them through on Slido. But let me pray, and then I'll give you a few moments to digest. Father, we grieve uh, that for so long, human beings have sought to find their redemption in each other, and that has caused immeasurable amounts of pain and grief. It's so sad that we have found it difficult to find our true satisfaction in you. And so we look to others to complete us, from spouses and girlfriends, boyfriends, friends, family, kids, and they haven't been able to bear the weight, Lord. But we thank you that you sent Jesus and, and even in the, in the Gospels to show that this is someone who can bear the weight of our expectation who can be the relationship we really, truly want, the source of life. And so, Father, may living waters 
flow from us as we have faith in him. Amen.